Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, previewing the Fourth Global Nash Congress. Each conversation collects pieces of dialogue from throughout the episode with the same common theme. The theme of this conversation is non-invasive diagnostics. Sunil Hasming, Global Diagnostics Lead for GenFit, identifies some of the companies and technologies he considers most worth following. The entire group discusses the importance of finding tests with strong positive predictive value. And at the end, Jorn Schottenberg notes that the liquid test companies have a stronger presence at this Congress than the device companies and wonders why. The conversation switches topics, but inspires thought and challenges assumptions throughout. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. April 28th and 29th, stakeholders from across the global fatty liver community will come together to hear 43 speakers address a range of NASH and NAFLD issues at the 4th Global NASH Conference. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Jarn Schottenberg, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and GenFit Global Diagnostics leader Sunil Hosmain as they preview some of the most exciting and forward-looking concepts from the NASH Congress this week on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Presentations on emerging diagnostic technologies. As far as I'm concerned, you know, when I kind of take a, a broad look at some of these abstracts, a major theme that I'd like to follow is kind of emerging technology in the context of, of diagnostics. And, you know, we, you can call it an A and a B to that. One of them is around new platforms. So some new proteomics things, new analytical technologies, new, new panels, for example. That That's kind of one kind of broad bucket. There's probably like a handful of uh, presentations along that axis, and then the other one is around kind of kind of more of the novel use, and and so there's been some interesting work from a prognostics perspective, looking at kind of predictors of outcomes and things of that nature. And uh, these are like kind of like two they, they 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 go hand in hand, but these are kind of like two kind of A and B to that kind of emerging uh, non-invasive technology bucket that I'm looking to dive into. So, are there any particular headlines and descriptions that you think are particularly compelling there? Sure, I can give you a few. So just you know, thinking about, for example, Andrew Andrew Billen's presentation with regards to non-invasive tests for prognosis and monitoring for patients with NASH and advanced fibrosis. So we know a lot of work's come out of the Gilead program in terms of prognostic applications, single combinatorial biomarkers. And generally speaking, every every six months that goes by, there's kind of a new data cut. It'd be interesting to see kind of what's coming out of that group. Another one would be Rui Castro, and I think some really good work coming out of Portugal with regards to microRNA. And, and kind of looking at it more holistically, identification of patients with cirrhosis, uh, people who may have a higher probability of progression to hepatic encephalopathy, and potentially people who may predict response to beta blockers and other kind of treatment interventions. So it linked um, and kind of kind of spanning kind of new technology prognostics segment that we were discussing. Very interesting. And, you know, looking at the biomarker program, there's also something by Glimpse Bio, and they're looking at urine bio. Biomarkers. So we haven't heard too much about urine biomarkers in NASH. Do you, you got a feeling on that or any any thoughts? Yeah, it's another great new platform. Relatively speaking, they're around the corner. They're in Cambridge. 
down from where I live. Following that company, it's come out of MIT. And I think what they're trying to do is say, rather than sampling blood, let's make like the, the assessment a little bit more engaging with the biology. So you consume or you inject novel components that are that are acted on by enzymes in the body, in the liver. And so you look at the byproducts that are produced, it kind of makes its way into urine. And so you can get a kind of like a, a true sense of activity in the liver. So it's very, it's very interesting. They have some phase one data. It's more complex of a route because it's a drug device combination. So every time you see them, a little bit more has come out. So I think it's a, it's definitely an interesting technology to be keeping an eye on. It's interesting because it could not just be a diagnostic, but it could actually be a drug discovery tool and any kind of other things. And I think you kind of see that language kind of spurred around there their materials. So interesting technology. Well, we're at it. I, th- I guess, Sunil, you can ad- educate me on, on the dynamic that a NIST-4 would change in, in patients if you do it repetitively. What's the what's the shortest interval you've actually sampled uh, patients? We, we didn't intend to do it, but when we go back and we look at the data, we actually have NIST-4 done paired amongst patients in the screening window and at baseline. And as you know, that can vary from a few weeks to a few months. Generally, there's no massive change in score, but you can begin to see like, in some patients for reasons we don't understand like uh, 10-20% change in, in the score. It doesn't usually amount to like a, a different interpretation in terms of the results. And, and in particular, YKL40 is one of the markers, seems to be one of the faster moving components. HBAC is pretty stable in a, in a short window of time. A2M is pretty stable. But the microRNA can, can, can move a little bit and the YKL40 can move as well. We don't know the, the biological significance of it though. That's, that's what we to... No, but for sure, if you, if you tell a patient about a trial, and, and Louise can comment on that, we've discussed it before, they start changing things. They, they you know, it's about the perception, it's about a physician talking to a condition, and um, people change uh, in those windows. Thanks, Sunil. I note, by the way, that your talk has now been moved to the closing keynote on day one. I didn't see that until literally this afternoon. So, Congratulations. You, you, you will be the closing keynote, and then you will immediately come to us hot off the presses. It's, it's funny how that happened. I think it was primarily done to fit my topic, <laughs> and it ended up fitting perfectly at the time of the keynote. So maybe that's a case of everyone taking a step back while I stayed stationary. Or, or, or as I'm fond of saying, um, sometimes the volunteer is the slowest person to run out of the room. There you go. I was, it was a rough day that morning. I couldn't reply fast enough to my email. Improving positive predictive values. One of the real challenges with this disease, and Stephen talks about this a bunch, is that we've got some pretty good negative predictors up the front end, but our positive predictive value is anywhere near where it needs to be. This might be part of your gateway in also, right? If you can get your positive predictive values up, then you can figure out who really needs help. Sunil has the one paper whose title pretty much talks about negative and positive predictive value, at least in the iteration of the title that I just saw, if I read it right, in the six seconds I spent skimming it. Um, And someone else in here, I forget who has a comment on liquid biopsy that says that that might also be the pathway way to, uh, to do that. You, you want to comment on that a little bit and what we can expect to hear, not giving away your talk so people want to listen to it, but enough about yours and the others that we understand what that topic's likely to look like in this meeting. There's um, probably a few ways that that's being addressed. I mean, from a technology perspective, from what you're seeing, it's it's likely refining, add, adding adding more uh, degrees of freedom into the system. So, you know, we're, we're seeing examples of like a proteomics-based approach, add, adding more markers 
that's kind of providing more context to the disease and, and disease process. And then by doing so, you're kind of fundamentally able to pick out, if we're talking about kind of linking to other topics we've discussed today, there's many types of NASH patients. We all we bucket them as like one type, but there's many types and there's different underlying biology that allows you to get there, but in different ways. And you can think about the fundamental limit of a lot of techno- you know, approaches is that because of cost, because of availability, you're, you're using a particular group to, to train and build your technology, right? And, and, and that's the basis for what you know truth to be. But if you're not sampling enough patients, you, you may be missing out on some of these subpopulations. So you can either use larger groups of data, cohorts, et cetera, or use more, more information per person. And I think you're going to see some talks geared around that way. And I think that's going to be one approach to improving the PPV, the positive predictive value of some of these um, approaches. I think the other one that's going to be important, it's it may be touched upon here, it may not, is you increase your, your pre-test probability. You're more intelligent in how you're putting people into the funnel to being tested. By the way, I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it, it's, you know, we, we know there's certain kind of simple factors to use, the type 2 diabetes, maybe obesity and your BMI, right, whether your transaminases are elevated or not. I, I bet you, right, as we learn more and more about the disease, it's a far more complex mix of of risk factors that may feed into who should get tested. And when you have a better sense of who are those at risk, then you will feed them into the diagnostic window. And by virtue of that, because you've kind of pre-enriched, you'll see better performance on the other end. So I think these two these two ways are going to converge. Fully agree. And I'm going to uh, just comment again here. With But there's a lot of talk about the diagnostic pathways and patient referral pathways. And as we get better in identifying patients at risk, I think the performance uh, metrics of a lot of those tests we've been looking at might be altered. And, and you know, you're in, in a perfect position to tell us what happens if I include more diabetics or less or older patients. Uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind talking about those accuracies. Excellent point, both of you. You and I heard your comment two ways. Number one is interpretive, which is if I'm looking at two different tests and I'm trying to evaluate their uh, efficacy and, and, and their predictive value, I need to understand the populations that they're treating and how they might be different. But the second one I hear is that when tests go into practice, we can actually start to, they say, what, they're horses for courses? You can actually start to target tests at different populations. This test will work better with this kind of patient. That test will work better with that kind of patient, which would be, I think, vastly um, helpful in terms of getting more people treated better quickly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, these days we're talking the cheapest test to everybody to really have a high negative predictive value and then do follow-up tests. But I think that whole strategy will see more refinement as more sophisticated tests that are more directly linked to fibrosis are, are emerging. And then we might actually be able to focus on positive predictive uh, values more, you know, instead of ruling everybody out and sending the rest onwards. Well, I suppose the only topics that I had um, that we haven't covered are the non-invasive technologies that are covered in day one. Lauren Castera always does an excellent presentation and he's doing the keynote speaker to start. And then Andreas Gier from Germany is doing integrating NAPLD screening into secondary and tertiary care, which is obviously a passion of mine, is if everybody was having sort of routine liver tests and sort of screening liver tests like Fibroscan, something non-invasive like that very early. GPs can target very early behavioral therapy way earlier in the timeline, which means that we get less of the progressive disease and less of the associated comorbidities. I know we're not there yet, but I'm really excited to hear his thoughts on that because we've got some great pathways through the UK that are in small pockets being done. And there's some great work and some great figures coming out of how many new diagnoses we get. Ian Rowe, for example, and Hampshire and places like that. So it, it's not 
not universal. So I'm really interested in listening to what Andreas has to say um, from that. No, I think that feeds into the discussion we just had here, how to use which biomarker in which screening population. I think uh, we'll learn a little bit on that in those presentations. That theme does kind of flow through a lot of this meeting, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot in here about non-invasive tests and biomarkers, and hopefully we'll have a lot more richness around that topic. A final comment on NITS. Looking at it, maybe as a final comment, Roger, uh, I, I'm not, there's a lot of blood-based. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing too much imaging-based technology specifically mentioned here by a speaker. I think it will be included at all levels, particularly after your session last week with Alina Elm. Uh, the MRE um, cutoffs have been very interestingly, but I'm hoping to, to hear some of that too. Yeah, it's interesting that the imaging companies, a couple of them sponsored last year, but not this year. So um, I don't know why that is, and I don't know what that might have to do with the shape the agenda's taken, but um, we have more more sponsorship, I think, and more interest in blood-based. I agree. It will be interesting to see what shape that's taken and how that's used in analyzing some of the drugs in patient situations. I think really important. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups to share your opinion and, and hear more from us. We'll release our next episode on Wednesday, April 21st, when Jorn Schottenberg returns, along with Stephen this time, to discuss his work on machine learning. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.